following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Uh, I've actually titled this message, uh, Faith That Moves Mountains. Uh, does anybody here feel like they have faith that moves mountains? <laughs> Who's going to raise their hand to that one, right? Because uh, we don't want to be bragging, or we're pretty convinced we don't have that kind of faith, right? Uh, this really is an amazing promise, and Jesus speaks it to his disciples, but we who are his children, we who uh, have been called to follow him, uh, are really given this exact same promise that uh, that we can we can possess a kind of faith that has the power to move mountains. Now, of course, uh, moving mountains is a is an idiom. It's a uh, an expression in 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 Jesus' day that really meant doing uh, the impossible. Uh, but it doesn't just mean doing the impossible. It, it means doing the extremely impossible. And, uh, of course, a mountain it would be a task for anybody to move. Um, and so they had this idea that to move a mountain was to do something that would be just extraordinarily impossible, not just difficult or kind of impossible, but really beyond uh, imagination. And Jesus says you can have that kind of power if you have uh, this faith. Faith can do that. Faith can accomplish anything. And that for you, nothing, he says, nothing should be impossible for you. Now, um, so what do you think about that? Do you think about your life going, man, nothing is impossible for me? Or uh, maybe you're more like uh, me, and maybe you've had this experience where you actually tried this, and at one point you actually really did believe this. Like you, you read these words and you thought, wow, I can do anything. And you tried this, and, and how many of you had the experience that it didn't work? Okay, I had this experience. I tried this and it didn't work. And so, um, uh, so, so we, we, we get jilted and think, well, I don't know what it really means, but it apparently doesn't mean what I think it means because it doesn't work, right? And um, certainly we could say, well, certainly my faith wasn't enough, and so I need more faith. But, you know, you've tried, you've strained at faith, and, and it still seems like this doesn't quite work for you. Have you had that experience? Certainly I have felt that way, and maybe do feel that way. Uh, for me, my first encounter of faith not really having the power that it claimed to um, was when I was a young boy, and I was out in the woods hunting, and hunting deer, and I loved to hunt, and, and uh, I remember being out in the woods, and, and I was young, and I had, I had yet to shoot, get shoot my first deer, and I was just so desperate, right? And I remember reading this, and I thought, you know, God promised that if I pray, I can do anything. So I prayed, God, bring that deer, just bring that deer right across my path, you know. And um, I prayed, nothing happened, right? Waited, nothing happened. So I thought, well, I need more prayer. So I, 
I, I just remember trying to strain every muscle in my body, physically and spiritually, to try to get enough faith. And I was like, I can believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. I'm just trying to strain all of my effort to get enough faith to make this work. And praying again, God, I'm believing with everything I have. Every, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, everything I've got is believing for this. Bring that deer. Waited, 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 waited. Nothing. Not even a snap of a twig, right? Nothing. And um, that, that hunting season, I got no deer, right? And, and so, so I, I, I started thinking, this, this apparently just doesn't work for me, right? Um, or, or maybe it was that the deer had more faith in me. <laughs> you know, that deer was out there praying for protection, and the deer actually had more faith than I had, and the deer won, <laughs> Maybe that was the deal. Well, um, what is it about this promise, right? This is a promise from Jesus that should work in our life, that he's called us to uh, um, as a disciple. So is it true? And if it's true, if it is true, why does it seem to, to work in our life like, uh, like Jesus expected? And we see in this story that Jesus is actually very disappointed it's not like, well, you know, faith works for some people and not for others. It's no big deal. No, Jesus is really disappointed that it doesn't work for them, uh, as we'll see in a minute. So how can we have this kind of faith that Jesus talks about here? Faith to do the impossible, a faith that will move mountains. Uh, well, first let's look at this uh, rather epic failure of the disciples. And I, I just, I feel for these poor guys, right? I mean, they fail here in a very big and public way. So their first failure, it says that um, we, we, kind of, we don't get the story. We only get what happened afterwards. But apparently uh, um, this man brings his son who's got some form of seizures, throws himself into the fire, throws himself into water. Uh, as we find out later, it says a result of demon, uh, demon possession. This boy has a demon in him. And they bring, he brings it to the, the disciples. And, and this is not the whole group, okay, because you remember Jesus was up on the mountain with uh, Peter, James, and John. So these are, this is like the B team, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> they didn't feel that way. But uh, the, the remaining nine, and uh, they uh, uh, brought this, this, this boy. And to their credit, they could have said, well, you know, Jesus isn't here. The doctor's out. So you'll just have to wait till he comes back. And no, they don't do that. They, they, and they, they attempt to deliver this boy and to heal him. And they do that because Jesus had already sent them out with authority and power to do this. Jesus had said uh, previously that he'd given them power to cast out demons and to, to bring healing and to carry on his ministry. That's what it meant to be a disciple. Right? They were to follow and do uh, the ministry that Jesus was doing. Uh, but on this day it didn't work. And they uh, were not able to uh, cast out the demon. They were not able to heal the boy uh, and I don't know how this worked, but maybe right there as they're trying to heal him, he goes into one of these seizures and spazzes out, and everybody's watching, and they're praying, and they're, they're trying to make this work, and, and it doesn't happen. And you can just imagine what the crowd's thinking, thinking, well, these guys, <laughs> well, they're not very good. You know, where's Jesus? Because these guys can't do it. So they're, they, they disappoint this father who brings his son, uh, they do it publicly, so now everybody in the whole crowd knows these nine don't have it. Right? Like, loser, right there, you know, uh, sad. And then, of course, Jesus shows up, and, and the dad runs over to Jesus. Finally, Jesus comes, 
please, he begs then, falls down on his knees, begs him, Jesus, can you please heal my son? And Jesus says, oh, you faithless and twisted generation. Okay, and he's speaking here uh, broadly about uh, the generation of Israel that was not believing, but he's really putting these nine disciples in that group, right? So now not only have they failed publicly, disappointed this father, but now Jesus blasts them publicly. You guys blew it, right? Uh, So this, you know, this is like epic failure, epic failure. Um, And and you see here uh, Jesus' great disappointment. Uh, his expectation is that they should do, be able to do this. Right? He is, uh, it is a big deal that they failed. And it may seem a little harsh, Jesus' treatment, treatment of them. But there's this expectation on disciples that we do these things, that, that, we do, that, that we fulfill the mission that he had given them to do. And, uh, and he says, how long must I bear with you? How long must I be with you? And we see Jesus uh, patience being tested by their failure, by their inability to do the things that he had been teaching and showing them how to do. Um, and, and you could imagine uh, Jesus' frustration. You know, it's one thing when the scribes, his enemies, the Pharisees, who had uh, very much resisted Jesus and had very much uh, were rejecting Jesus in his ministry, certainly that would be disappointing for Jesus. But to see his followers, you know, the people who who put confidence in Jesus, who were following after him, who were uh, seeking to be his disciples, uh, to see them fail was very disappointing. And it's a good reminder for us that as we work with uh, broken, sinful people, uh, it does require vast amounts of patience. Right? Uh, how many times have we been working with somebody and pouring our lives and investing and teaching and uh, challenging them to walk with Christ, and we see them fail. We see them not move forward, but move backward. We see them crash and burn. And, uh, and it, honestly, it's tempting to give up on them, right? To say, ah, why? Right? Uh, but of course, Jesus does not give up on his disciples. Um, and he gives the answer to that question, how long must I put up with you? Uh, there's several ways you could answer that. We won't look at all of them today. But in, in chapter 28, Jesus says, I will be with you. Jesus says, I will be with you to the end of the age. Right? So he's in this with us for the long haul. He is going to endure with us, and he is going to be patient, even though often it may be tested to the limits. Um, so we need to have that same attitude as we work with people. We need that same kind of patience and forbearance. Uh, and it's also good to remember uh, God's patience with us, right? When we feel tempted to be frustrated with those who don't do it the way we think they should, remember how patient God is with us, right? How often we fail him. How often we fall short. How, fall, how often we fall on our face. And, and Jesus is patient, right? He's patient. He may be frustrated, but he's patient. He does forbear, right? Um, so uh, uh, something that's important to highlight here is that, that God, that Jesus, is calling the, these disciples to do the impossible. Right? He doesn't say to them, well, that was really hard. Good job giving it a good try. Way to go. Right? But, you know, it was pretty hard, so I didn't really expect you to be able to do that. Right? Is that what he says? No. 
Uh, he expects them to do the impossible. No matter how hard, no matter st- how stubborn, how entrenched these demons were, or this sin, or this brokenness, Jesus expected them to be able to confront those things uh, and overcome them by faith. Right? So what went wrong? Why was it? And they, of course, they come to Jesus after this whole disaster, and I could just see these poor guys, you know, just totally defeated, discouraged, coming to Jesus. Jesus, why? Why? What did we do wrong? Like, it always worked before, and they, and they had done this, right? They had been sent out. They had done this before. It's like, you know, we, we know we did this. We know we've been successful. Why this time did it not work? What happened? Um, and, and, of course, Jesus doesn't help the situation because he makes it look so easy. Brings the boys, bring the boy to me, rebukes the demon, boom, he's gone, he's healed, poof, just like that. It's like, see, it's not that hard, right? Why did you guys make this so difficult? And they're like, why couldn't we do that? Like, you made it look so easy. Well, um, so Jesus says to them, short answer, uh, because of your little faith. Uh, but, but what's important to see here is that, that Jesus calls his disciples to do the impossible. Right? And we could say, well, that was great for the, the G- Jesus' disciples here in the Bible, but what about us? Well, as Christ followers, right, if, we're, if we're a Christian, we're called not only to, to come to Christ so that he could deal with our sin, but in Matthew he makes it very clear that we're also called to be his followers. Like To be a Christian means to follow Jesus. And it doesn't mean to follow him as his fan club, right? Uh, Jesus didn't need a cheering section, and the disciples were not like cheerleaders going, Yay, Jesus, go, go, go. You know, heal those demons, da, 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 right? No, no, no. It's a good thing I'm not a cheerleader, right, because I'd be really bad at it. Um, uh, he was not their fan. Uh, they were not his fan club. They were his disciples, his mentors. His, uh, they, he was mentoring them to be his apprentices to do the ministry that he did. He sent them out to do the exact things that he did. Right? That's what I meant to be a follower. And so, so we as, as Christ's followers are called to carry on his ministry and mission in the world. Right? That's true for every believer, whether you do it full-time or if you have a, a secular career. We are, regardless, called to, as Jesus' followers to be on mission with him. And it is a mission that is impossible. It's impossible for a number of reasons. First, we are, our mission is ultimately to proclaim Christ to a lost and broken world and uh, to, to proclaim the kingdom of light in a kingdom of darkness. Uh, that's, that's what our, our, our mission is. We are to be witnesses in our life and in our words to who Jesus is. But that's what we're called to do, to make disciples of the nations just like Jesus did, to call out those who would follow him and uh, be dedicated to, to Christ. Uh, we are to love others. Okay, so we're to do this ministry with, with God's very love. And not only for people we like, but we're actually called to love people who are our enemies, those who hate us, those who reject us. Right? And these are impossible things. Right? So the mission itself is impossible because it's very difficult. Um, we, we are up against a world that hates everything about God and about Christ. And we're supposed to proclaim this truth to this world who is stubbornly resistant. And if you've uh, shared Christ here with Thai people, you will know what resistance looks like. It has a very friendly face. It smiles. It says, yes, that's nice. 
right? But it, it's, it rejects the truth, right? That's what we're called to. But in addition to that, we're, 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 we are battling our own weakness and fear, right? Talk about impossible. What's impossible is my own, the condition of my own life, right? Uh, my life uh, is uh, uh, tempted to many sins, right? How do I overcome these sins that often have such a grip on my life? Uh, and the struggles of my flesh, the weaknesses of my flesh. Honestly, it's hard for me to go out and share Christ with people who hate the message because of fear, because I don't want to be rejected, because I don't want uh, I don't want to fail. Right? I don't want to share Christ with people and have them reject the message and feel like I have failed. Right? Uh, those are some impossible things we must overcome. Uh, uh, we do have to overcome the resistance and hard heartedness of humanity. That, uh, that hates the message of the gospel, that thinks it's foolish and ridiculous. Uh, we also come up against the powers of darkness and evil, like they did here in this story. There are evil and demonic forces that hold people's hearts and minds captive. And we engage in, a, in not only a human battle, but a spiritual battle. How do we win that? Well, of course, these are all impossible things, uh, but it's exactly what God calls us to. Uh, and the way we overcome that uh, is through faith. He said, the, the, he said, the reason you failed is because of your little faith. Um, uh, but with faith, you can do the impossible, right? So uh, Jesus makes it very clear. And what this story is about is uh, that uh, they failed because they didn't have uh, enough faith. But it's interesting. He says, your faith is little, but if, so get this, your faith is little. You failed because your faith was so little, it was not adequate for the task. Uh, so how much faith do you need to have enough? He says, all you need is the faith of a mustard seed. Okay, so a mustard seed is a little tiny, tiny seed. He's saying their faith is so small, it's not even enough to mount, be, be a mustard seed worth. All right? In other words, their faith is pretty much non-existent, Right? In this moment, their faith was completely inadequate. That's really the idea here. It's inadequate. Um, and he says, all you need is a mustard seed worth. All right, so let's just try to drum up a mustard seed worth. So how do we do that? Uh, if our faith is inadequate, how do we get a mustard seed worth of faith? Um, let's think about this a little. Uh, First, we need to consider what faith is. Uh, what is faith? Um, is, and and, and my, my point here is that faith is a conviction, not a choice. What I mean by that? Um, to understand how to increase faith, we have to little, uh, how to increase our faith. We need to understand a, a bit about what faith is. What exactly do we mean by this term faith? Um, uh, first, it requires a mustard seed worth. Because faith is not about our ability, right? He doesn't say, well, you need to grow up your faith muscles until you're kind of the incredible hulk of faith, and then you'll be able to do this. No, he says, it only takes a mustard seed worth. Because the, the key to faith is not who we are, but it's the object of our faith, right? The only one who could cast out those demons, the only one who could heal that boy was God himself. And what faith is, is faith is tapping into God's, uh, God's power 
and what God's going to do and unleashing that power and that ability as we work in the world. Faith is not some ability we have to do supernatural things, right? Uh, it is operating in God's power. And so uh, faith only needs to be small because the key to faith is the object, what it is we believe in. What we believe in is a mighty God who has unlimited power. It is the greatness of God, not the greatness of our faith that matters, right? So first of all, faith is this, this, uh, has as its object, has as its focus, uh, a belief about a God who is able to do what needs to be done, to do the impossible, right? Uh, but, but what do they need to do? So that's, that's kind of what faith is, is directed toward. But what do they need to grow their faith from zero to very tiny? Okay, that was only, that's all they needed, from zero to almost nothing. And then it would have worked, right? So that's encouraging for us because it's not like we have to be a Christian for 190 years and, you know, uh, read and memorize the whole Bible so we can cite it backwards so that we become this super spiritual person. Uh, and then maybe we'll have big enough faith that we can do the impossible, right? Now, the encouraging thing is we didn't seem to go from almost nothing to, I mean, from zero to almost nothing, right? So that also tells us something about the nature of faith. Um, and a uh, great verse on faith, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Jesus does not define faith here, but uh, thankfully it's def- defined in Hebrews 11.1 1, simply as this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So, so one thing we know about faith is faith is, is let's talk about what it's not. Faith is not a matter of choice or will or trying hard. Okay, faith is not about trying harder. See, when I was out deer hunting, I thought the secret to faith was if I just strained every fiber of my being to believe, if I focus all my energy and all my thoughts and all my will on believing, I could somehow pop faith out. Like I could give birth to this baby of faith, right, by trying hard. It's not how it works. Okay, that is just absolutely not how it works. Um, you cannot will or, or cause faith by some kind of choice. Well, I'm just going to believe it, right? Maybe the problem is we've watched too many Santa Claus movies, okay? I know some of you out there, you, you, you love those Santa Claus, feel-good Santa Claus movies, right? And, and this is kind of the, kind of the storyline of every Santa Claus movie. There's some person who is a skeptic, who believes there's no such thing as Santa, right? Those wicked, skeptical people, right? Which I'm one of. And, uh, and, but, you know, they go through this series of events, and, and it kind of comes down to this thing where you just got to believe. Like, if you just believe enough, Santa will become real for you, right? And, and, and that's kind of how we, we think faith works. Well, if I just believe it hard enough, I just try hard enough, Poof, I can, I can have this faith. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, it, it does not work that way. And you cannot will your, yourself to believe in Santa because knowledge and experience will always overwhelm your will. All right? In other words, no matter how much you tell yourself, I'm going to believe in Santa, there's, there's too many parts of your brain that say, well, it's not true, right? I've seen pictures of the North Pole. Guess what? No Santa's workshop. If you're, if you're here and you're under 12, I'm probably wrecking your whole life right now. But, um, right, it's just like, it's not real. 
And so you can't, your will cannot overcome what you know to be true. Right? It doesn't work that way. Uh, so what is faith? Well, faith, it says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? It's being convinced something is true, even if it's invisible, even if it's hidden. Right? You can say, well, the North Pole is hidden. Santa's workshop is hidden. Right? If I'm convinced it's real, it's real. Well, well, of course, here's the thing. Faith is a conviction about the way things are. It is being convinced of reality. It is possible to be convinced of something that's not true. Right? If you want to believe in, in Santa Claus, you could convince yourself that he's true. But that doesn't make him true. Okay? It's not just the conviction. Um, likewise, there can be hidden realities. There can be things that are real in this world, even if we don't believe them. Okay? Uh, we don't invent or create the supernatural just by believing in it. Right? But there is a supernatural. So I, I'm, I'm just always uh, amused at doctors, medical doctors, who are treating patients who uh, are miraculously and completely and instantly healed of their cancer. Anybody have a friend who's had that kind of healing? I have several, right? People who, had, who were diagnosed with terminal cancer, stage four, going to the grave. You have three months to live kind of cancer. And they go up to the doctor's office one day, and the doctor does tests, and he takes scans, and he looks, and he says, the cancer's gone. I don't know why. It's just gone instantly, right? And, of course, we know that God can do that. It's a miracle. But what does the doctor say? He says, well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> I don't know what happened. But it wasn't supernatural, like it's a fluke, like this just happens sometimes, right? right? See, there's hidden things that we may not believe. That no matter how much we see it, we still uh, refuse to accept it, right? But faith is when those two things come together. There is a conviction about something, and, and, and it's, it's in something that may be hidden, but very real. Very much reflecting the world and reality. Right? So faith is being convinced uh, about things that are real and true, even if hidden or invisible or mysterious, right? Uh, and the thing is, once we come to that conviction, we don't have to will anything. Right? We don't have to try. Like, I don't have to believe that the sun's going to come up. Because in my 59 years of life, every morning it's come up, right? And even though some mornings I don't see it because it's cloudy and fogged in, right? I just know it's there. I don't have to try to believe, oh, I'm going to believe today that the sun comes up. Right? I don't have to try because... I'm convinced. I'm convinced. That's what faith is. It is this conviction that it's true. Right? And when we are convinced, faith is easy. Um, so we don't know what happened with the disciples. We don't know uh, where they, what they were thinking wrong. But, but we do know this. They weren't convinced God could do this. Ultimately, that's what their failure was. They were not convinced uh, uh that God could heal this boy through them. Um, and when Jesus comes down, we don't really have any glimpse into what they were believing wrong. But what we do have is this insight of what Jesus said about them. And these are harsh words and uh, maybe a bit unkind. But he lumps them in with this what? This faithless and twisted generation. Okay, that was the spirit of the age. That was the, the generation. That was the world 
that Jesus lived in. It was characterized by a faithlessness, and it was twisted. It was distorted. Some translations say it was a perverse, like in the old, I think the old King James, a perverse generation. Right? What, what does that mean? Well, of course, it means they didn't believe. They didn't believe God. Uh, they didn't have a conviction about things that were true that were unseen. Now, of course, uh, in Jesus' day, the Jews did believe in God, uh, but, but they didn't believe with the kind of conviction that was rooted in truth. He says they were, they were faithless and twisted. And those two things go together. Right? So faith is, true faith is rooted in a conviction about what's true. But what happened is they had a faith in things that were twisted. Right? The truth had got turned upside down. What they thought was real was not real. Right? And what they no longer believed to be true was truth. But that's what it means to be twisted, to be perverted. It means to take something that's right and reshaping it into something different that's no longer right or true. We use this word of sexual perversion. Right? What do we mean when we say that something is perverted in a sexual sense? Well, what we mean is that sex was given to mankind by God as something good and pure and holy and to be entered into in the, the protected covenant relationship of marriage. Right? And to pervert it is to take that good thing that God made holy and pure and to misuse it and to twist and change it into something that is evil, that is not according to its intended purpose. Right? And, and you change its very nature so that something good becomes now something evil. Well, that's what the world does to their understanding of truth, of reality. They twist and change it so that uh, it's no longer right or true, but it's false. Um, and ultimately what they have twisted is the truth about God's, God's character, who God is, and his reality, and the world he's created in its purpose. Um, and that's true in our day. Now, it's different in our day. Uh, and so let's talk about how the world has twisted the truth in our era. Um, one of the most significant things is uh, uh, they have said that there is no God, that we are the product of evolution, right? And there's science to back this up, apparently, right? And they pull out their science and they pull out their dinosaur bones and they pull out their charts that talk about millions and billions of years. And they say, see, this is science, right? And so you can choose to believe science or you can believe the myth of the Bible, right? Uh, but what they have done is they have twisted truth, right? Now, I'm, I'm not going to get into the debate of how old the world is or how old the universe or, or that. Um, but, but here's the thing. We are not a cosmic accident, right? And every person knows that inherently, right? Nothing about our life can be explained by uh, molecules in the universe randomly colliding together and poof, out comes a living cell, right? And, and here's the thing. Let's talk about science. Uh, science is being able to reproduce and demonstrate a truth by, by duplicating it, right? And, and science to this day, with all of our technology and all of our laboratories and all of our high sophisticated equipment, science has never made one single living cell, right? So if this is how it works, why can't it be reproduced scientifically? Well, because it's not true, right? It's not true. By the way, uh, and this may have changed recently, but up until last time I read about it, 
Scientists couldn't even create a cell wall. Right? They couldn't even manufacture a cell wall. So they're doing some pretty tricky things with genetic engineering. But when they do it, they have to take an already existing cell, scrape it out, put their little concoction of DNA that they've spliced together. They didn't create. They spliced it together and put it in an already existing cell because they can't even make the cell wall. Right? But supposedly it accidentally all just came together on its own. Right? So it's not science. Right? And it's not truth. It is distorting truth to say that uh, there is no God, and because there's no God, there's no moral laws, there's no moral lawgiver. We get to make up the rules, and we get to be the center of the universe. That's how the world has twisted and distorted truth. And that kind of thinking kills faith. Because it says, well, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if he's good. I don't know what his purpose is. Right? Um, even more significantly, if, if we're just a cosmic accident, there's no such thing as eternal. There's no such thing as the spiritual realm. right? And so when we die, we just go back to the cosmic space dust we came from, and that's the end of it. right? Where are these people going to be in for a surprise when they meet the truth face-to-face in eternity, <laughs> when they stand before God and they find out they were wrong? And they come boldly into the presence of the truth that, oh, there is a God, there is an eternity, and by the way, you need to give an answer for your life. Right? That's truth. Right? So, so, so here's the thing. Faith is this conviction that's rooted in truth. Right? How do we come to that? How do we come to know this truth? Well, we come to know it through the revelation of Scripture. Right? Romans 10.17. So faith comes from hearing... And hearing through the word of Christ, right? We come to scripture and we see what God has revealed, the truth God has revealed about himself. Now, if you're smart, if you're, if you're really sharp, you're going to be saying, yeah, but how do you know it's true? Right? And that's a good point. And here's the irony of it all. Even revelation requires faith. Right? And ultimately, faith ultimately is something God must work in us, right? It is a work of the Spirit that he opens our eyes and enables us to see and understand revelation as truth, right? But here's the thing. God never works apart from revelation, right? He reveals truth, and then by his Spirit, he opens our eyes to see and appreciate it and value it as truth, right? But he works in conjunction with what he has revealed. And it is that that... Uh, helps us, and, and so the task for us of faith is replacing our wrong ideas about what's real with the right ideas of what's true from Scripture. And letting the Holy Spirit etch those things so into our thinking and into our mind, into our psyche, that we are just convinced this is the way it is. Right? See, amen. I'm getting, I'm getting fireworks on that one. Amen. Right? That's how it is, right? That's where faith comes from. Faith does not come from straining our will. Faith comes from digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into truth until we just know this is the reality. We know there's a God, and we know who he is and what he's like, and we know there's an eternity, and we know we will stand before him. And it scares us to death, because what will it be to stand before this holy God? 
And so we, we, we know that we need to change our life. And we are, we are thankful that he sent his son Jesus and that we can stand before God in Christ and that our sins are removed and we stand before him holy and blameless and right. right? And we hold on to those truths. We are convinced of those truths even though they're often hidden and invisible. Right? So that's the first task for us of faith is to replace our wrong thinking or twisted and distorted thinking with right thinking. And it's a battle because we are daily being bombarded with uh, truth that seems reasonable. It seems scientific. There's studies. There's proof, right? And uh, it seems like if we, uh, if we buy into faith, we're being unscientific, right? Which is not true. So we need to root ourselves in Scripture, right? And let the Word uh, convince us of what reality really is. Second thing, um, second thing, we need to understand that there are there are limits to the impossible. Okay, there are limits to the impossible. Uh, he says here, you can do anything. Nothing will be impossible for you, and that is absolutely true. Nothing will be impossible for you. Um, uh, he says you can have the ability to move mountains, right? Um, and that is possible for you. But here's the question. Just because it's possible doesn't mean that that's what we're supposed to be doing. Right? That we can move mountains doesn't mean we're supposed to be. Right? Well, you can imagine how the world would be if every Christian thought, I don't like Sutep there. I think it should be in, I don't know, somewhere else. Right? And just daily, like daily, it would make our life really complicated if daily move, mountains were being moved around because Christians were trying their power. <laughs> Right? Like one day I'm on a mountaintop, the next day I'm in the middle of an ocean, right? Um, um, God put the mountains exactly where they are because he wanted them there, right? And it is not his will or purpose to necessarily move them all, right? Now, he may have mountains he wants moved, and he will. Uh, but it doesn't mean he, that's our calling. So here's the thing, that we can do anything doesn't mean we have permission to do everything. Okay? That we can do anything. Anything is possible for us. Doesn't mean we have permission or that we are called to just do whatever, to do everything. There are limits, right? And the limits, there's, there's no limits to what faith can do, but there are limits to what God is calling us to do. Right? And, and Scripture is very clear that anything is possible, but God calls us to his purpose and his will. Right? And so uh, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking here in this context specifically about doing a ministry and, and performing miracles that Jesus had commanded and assigned them to. Right? He told them, go cast out demons. And they couldn't do it. Right? Um, and the limit for us is, is to, to, to do what God called us to. Right? Apparently, God did not command me to go out and kill a deer when I was 15 years old, right? Now, of course, I could, but I think in those kind of situations, God's kind of like, you and the deer, it's, you know, you're on your own. <laughs> I'm going to give the deer its chance. I'm going to give you your chance. May the best, best man deer win, right? Um, now, if I was starving to death and God said, I don't want you to go out and I'm going to provide for you, that's different, right? So there are things that we can do. 
Uh, but God hasn't promised to work miraculously in everything that we could do. He's only promised to give us power to do anything and everything when it's in, in line with what he's called us to, to his mission for us, his purpose for us. Right? So, so here's another uh, a great secret. A key to great faith is earnest listening. Right? You and great faith, you will have great faith when you hear clearly what God is calling you to do and you know that God has said, go do this. And you've got the confidence to know, if God has called me to do, do it, there's nothing that will stand in my way. Right? There's no limit of money or time or, or miraculous power. Right? So, so, um, so this raises a question. I have to deal with this question. I don't want to, but like, because they were expected to heal this boy, does it mean that we as believers are expected to heal every sickness and every disease that we encounter? I don't think so, right? I don't think so. Uh, nowhere in Scripture does it promise that, that, that God is going to heal every disease in this life. He will heal every disease, right? But he heals it through death and resurrection, right? That's how he ultimately heals every disease. I don't believe there's a promise in Scripture that, that God says, I'm going to heal every sickness. And every person that gets brought to you, you can pray for them and I will heal you. Um, now, may God lead you to lead, lead you to pray specifically for a person who, say, who says, I'm going to heal that person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for healing. No, I believe we should always pray for healing because I don't know. And I'm always going to pray for healing unless God specifically tells me not to. Right? But I'm not going to be disappointed. I'm going to leave that up to God unless he's commanded me. You know, I'm going to heal this person. You go pray for them. Then I'm going to trust him and know he's going to do that. Otherwise, I'm going to leave it up to God. I'm going to pray, God, you're a merciful God. I pray for your healing on that person. And I'm going to leave it up to you to do what you will do. Uh, and, and if you do not heal, I know that you will be with that person and you will comfort and you will encourage them. Right? Right, so listening. Great faith uh, comes from listening to know God's purpose and will. Last thing. Um, interestingly, uh, if you know much about the Gospels, you know that in Matthew, Jesus says, the fault, the problem is because of your little faith. But in Mark, it's a different account, right? And this has caused so much problems that uh, in, in some Bibles, there's actually a verse 21. In my Bible, it goes 19, 20, 22, right? So look at your Bible. How many of yours it goes 19, 20, 22? Anybody? Okay, so what happened to verse 21? Ah, verse 21 is gone. We lost it. We need to find verse 21. Well, here's the problem. Uh, in Mark, it says this, And when he had entered the house, uh, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot, come out, uh, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Okay, so what happened is, way back... A long, long time ago when they were hand-copying the Bible, somebody thought, boy, Matthew and Mark just sound really different. Like Matthew says, the problem was your lack of faith. Mark says the problem was you don't pray enough. We need to fix this. And so somebody took uh, Mark's verse and added it on at the end of this account in Matthew. Right? The best and oldest manuscripts do not have it, do not have verse 21. Right? It was clearly added. Um, and you can kind of see why that would be done, because these seem to be Jesus saying two very different things. Like, not enough faith just doesn't sound like 
You need to pray more, right? Um, so let's think about this. Uh, what exactly was going on here when in Mark, where Jesus says, uh, you know, this kind comes out only through prayer, through much prayer. What that sounds like, if you read it at face value, is it sounds like the problem is they should have had a prayer meeting around this boy, right? They should have all nine disciples, they should have got down and they should have just started praying and praying and praying and praying until God healed the boy, right? That's kind of what it sounds like, right? You didn't pray enough. In fact, you forgot to, maybe you forgot to pray altogether. And that's why it didn't work, right? And, uh, of course, we could apply this. Somebody comes forward for healing. We just need to get enough people around them. And if we all pray long enough, um, they'll get healed. The problem with that is when we see what Jesus actually did, is that what Jesus does? Jesus says, bring the boy to me. Does Jesus pray? Not a word, right? Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say, Father, uh, please heal this boy. Nothing. What does he do? Jesus drives out the spirit. He commands the spirit to leave. Jesus does not pray a word. Right? And it's important to understand that uh, Jesus does all of his miracles as an example to show them how to do it. He says, follow me. Do what I do. Right? And, and Jesus doesn't lay hands on the boy. He doesn't pray, to the, he doesn't pray over the boy. He just casts out the demon. Right? So what it means is that uh, in Mark, Jesus is not saying, well, if you would have had a longer prayer meeting, this would have worked. That's not what he's saying. Uh, in fact, that would be going very much against what he taught in Matthew 6, 7, and 8, when he says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Okay? Jesus says, that's not real prayer. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Right? So he's not saying here, you know, if you just pray enough, if you pray enough, you'll have faith and power. What he's saying, right? Uh, what he's saying, though, I think, is that there is a kind of prayer that prepares you, that equips you, that does grow and build faith. Right? There, there's a kind of praying that you do ahead of time, because right? Jesus prayed. He just didn't pray right then. He prayed just a couple days before this, a week before this. He'd been up all night praying before he, before he walked on water, right? We know that Jesus spent significant times in prayer, right? That's the kind of prayer he's talking about. Um, it's the kind of prayer that is listening prayer, that's trying to discern and discover what God's going to do, where he hears God speak and say, I am going to heal that boy. And so you can be confident and, and, and cast it out, right? But there's also something more to prayer than just listening. Uh, back to this idea of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Okay, that's that conviction uh, of the unseen. You must believe. You must be convinced that God exists. And that he what? That he rewards those who seek him. Right? Faith is a, a journey of seeking the invisible hidden God that exists in all eternity. And it's a conviction that, that God rewards the seeker. He rewards those who search for him. And I think that's the kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about in, in, in Mark. 
that it's a, it's a kind of prayer that is very much wrapped up with faith. Right? That our faith grows. Why? Because we are convinced of things that are true. How do we become more convinced of things that are true? Well, we come to have a new knowledge of who God is and what he's promised. We get, we get that through the word. But here's the problem. The disciples had been getting that kind of growing understanding, right? More and more they becoming to understand who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah. But faith wasn't growing, right? So you can have a lot of knowledge about who God is. You can know all the right answers. You can know the revelation. But that is not the same thing as coming and experiencing those things by confronting God face to face, by being in his presence and in prayer, meeting and knowing him. There is a knowledge that goes beyond just what we know in information. There is a knowledge of intimate, personal relationship with him. And I think the only way we have that kind of encounter with God is through seeking prayer, where we come into his presence, not just to tell him stuff, not just to tell him everything that's wrong in our life and ask him to fix it, but that comes into God's presence to meet him and to know him and to discover these truths in a very intimate, hands-on, personal encounter, personal way. Right? Knowing who God is, what he is like, what his heart is like, and knowing what he has promised to do for us. Right? Uh, I don't think what, what Matthew says and what Mark says are actually any different. It's just kind of two sides of the same coin. Faith comes through seeking God. Seeking God comes through, through prayer that grows us into a deeper faith. Right? So do you want faith that can move mountains? Anybody here want faith that can do the impossible? Okay, if you don't, man, I don't know you, you, I don't know what to do for you, right? I want that because life is hard, and I'm tired of getting kicked and beat up and run over, right? I'm tired of being of failing at ministry, like it's like these poor guys. It's embarrassing, right? Uh, I don't want to go through my life and get to the end and say I wasted my life and I have nothing, no fruit to show for it, right? No, I want to be, I want to have the kind of faith that overcomes. Uh, the obstacles that moves mountains, it does the impossible. Okay. Well, if you want that, what do we need to do? Man, we need to be seeking God in prayer. Like not just praying to check it off your list, not just praying to go through you know, your requests, which God calls us to those. Right? We should be intercessors. But, but taking it beyond that to pray, prayer that seeks to meet him, to meet him face to face, to know him. Right? that he would reveal himself to us, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and in our spirits. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.